0: thank you for this time in the word now lord we've sang from our hearts to you lord we've lifted up truth back to you We've glorified you and now lord we turn to your word this is where we feed lord this is where we grow this is where we put on spiritual muscle and strength lord wisdom and knowledge that comes from you lord so give us ears to hear and even better yet lord not only being hearers but doers of the word Lord, we praise you for all those going to camp, a full camp, waiting list, Lord. Praise the Lord for that this this year, Lord. And we ask that you would do great and mighty things in these young people's lives, in the adults' lives that are there, all of our lives that partake in this great event called camp, Lord. Just be with them, care for them, keep them safe, Lord, and give them attentive ears, Lord. Father, we thank you for each and every person that's here. What a joy to look out across a congregation that longs to hear the word of God. Lord, may you continue to use this church. And if it be your will, add numbers to it, Lord, where we can have an effective witness through the preaching of God's word to our community and beyond. Now, Lord, may you hear your truths preached and may it be sweet to your ears. In Jesus' name, amen. I start with an illustration that I have used once before on a Wednesday night, but I think it bears repeating. Years ago in my early church planting days, I was involved with a ministry that I would go and preach a Bible study at and teach a Bible study every other week. It was a two-and-a-half-hour drive. and It was to a place called Mountain Jewel Ranch. And I remember that name. You might want to look it up later. Mountain Jewel Ranch was the, a ranch birthed from a great vision of a, a dear friend of mine. His name was Steve, uh, and his wife's name was Peggy King. Uh, they are now retired. They are pastors for a long time, and in the ranching world as well, and they had God gave them a down syndrome child and they raised Rusty um, throughout all their ministries and all the things they did but they realized what a tremendous burden for uh, aging adults with uh, a child with special needs and so God led them to start a ranch for special needs adults Uh, mainly for those who were in ministry missionaries around the world that after 40, 50 years of taking care of these dear young people, that there would be a place where they could go. And they made it incredibly reasonable to have them there financially for them. They asked me to come teach a Bible study because this group wanted to reach their neighbors, these other ranchers and people that were in the area, and I said I'd love to. Drive two and a half hours, teach for an hour, drive two and a half hours back uh, to my own ranch. Loved every minute of it. What was special about these, particularly these young men that were there, is that they all, for the most part, couldn't read. They were all pretty much the way they were born. But I'll tell you what. You would never find yourself among a more happier group of people. And here's the most glorious thing. They could share the gospel with you perfectly. Though they could not read uh, the Bible themselves, they believed they were sinners. They believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead to show victory over that, those sins. And they believed that God had saved them through Christ alone. And they would tell you that and articulate that to you clearly. Now, isn't that amazing? You have the smartest men in the world. You have people with... More letters behind their names than they know what to do with. Can't grasp the simplicity of the gospel. And yet God, as he says in his word in Psalms 19.7, the testimony, the word of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's what this text is about today. God loves to take the things that the world calls foolish. That the world calls ignorant. Ignorant moronic. And he proves that that is the only way to eternal life. And he does this through his gospel, the word of the cross, and his perfect word. I want to look at three thoughts today through this text. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 25 through 31. Our first thought is this, Christ and his word are wiser than men and stronger than men. Christ and his word are wiser than men and stronger than men. Look at verse 25 with me. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger of men. You can see my title just got pulled right out of the verse. Well, here, this verse, and I love the verse, what it does here. It's both a confirmation of the preceding statements that we studied last week, and it's an an introduction to to the... Four coming verses. So he says, look, this is what happens. The things that may be what man, if this could be at all true, which is not, God is not foolish. The foolishness of God is still wiser than men, and I'll explain that. And the weakness of God is still stronger than men. Meaning, when you go all the way back and you start in verse 18, where it says the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, this is what he's speaking of. He's speaking those things that the world has looked at, down, looked down upon the Lord Jesus Christ and said, "There's got to be a better way. I've got to be able to take something, do something, I have to be accepted from my heritage, the works that I've done, my bloodlines. Something else has to be, this is too simplistic, this is too foolish. I cannot believe in Jesus Christ alone for eternity. And so It becomes foolish to them. And remember last week, Paul says, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, the world's always changing. The evolutionists don't even believe in the Big Bang theory anymore. They said, yeah, we missed it on that one. That's probably not what happened. They're trying to find something new now. And that only came about in the late 1800s. So they keep changing all the time. They're always searching for the next thing. Oh, today we solve things through pills, right? Whether it be children or adults or whatever it is. Because we've got to help them. They have these issues. They've been born with these issues. We have to help them. What did they do in Jesus' day? What did they do in the life of Moses? Where were the pharmacists then? Where was that? See, God just shows over and over that man is constantly trying to somehow deal with the heart, his own heart, the heart of man. And they cannot figure it out. So it is time and time again they keep bringing about something new to try to deal with the heart. And they fail every time. And yet, brothers and sisters, they look at the gospel. This beautiful designed plan of God from the foundations of the world. And it is foolish to them they're lost they're lost well then he comes to this verse in 25 (laughs) and here he's now going to prove through the following verses that God is so much wiser than men that he is so much stronger than men and yet they themselves are foolish let me give you a couple of thoughts first the wisdom of God here under number one The wisdom of God. It says, because the foolishness of God is is wiser than men. Well, the gospel is effective because of the lowest revelation of divine wisdom. We think about this. The gospel in its lowest level. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I'm forgiven. I go to heaven. In its most simplest form. It's still so much more effective, so much greater than the highest wisdom men can come up with. They cannot come up with a better solution of what lays for them after death than the gospel. Certainly, this refers to this beautiful, simplistic nature of the gospel, right? When we look at verse 25 here that man, by nature, he's dead in his sins. He has no way on his own strength to be awakened. He cannot waken himself to God. He's dead. He's spiritually dead. But God, think about this. But God in his sovereignty chooses to grant faith and repentance. He gives new life to people who were dead. He gives new life to individuals, to Christ alone. And these believers, now what happens to us? We choose, after he's given us life, we choose to obey him. We follow him. Today, across this country and across the world, hopefully, I imagine they're returning, millions upon millions will return to churches where the Bible is taught. Now, the majority of the world won't, but we are. You're here. You're here because you believe that Jesus died for your sins, forgave you for your past, present, and future sins, and you believe in Him, and you've come to hear of Him today. Most of the world thinks you're a fool. Why don't you go to the beach today and look at the evolution of the world? See, we come here and sing about the Creator. They think about how it evolved somehow, which they can't even agree on that. Simply put, listen, we're sinners. Jesus died in our place He appeased the wrath of God on our behalf. See, they can't get their mind around that. If they believe there's a God, they see God as distant and and possibly angry and and really has nothing to do with us, right? They may have some deistic type of view of him. But not us. We see that he has died for us. He's appeased the wrath of God. And listen to this. He made us part of his forever family. And no matter how many letters you have behind your name, you will not take us from that truth. We believe it. Instead, mankind finds himself hanging and clinging on to fallen human wisdom. They put together such complicated list of how the the righteous can make themselves to God, right? So, so on one hand, you have those who, who try to bring themselves to God in some way through their human wisdom. You have another group that is caught up in religion to religion, and they, they make lists of do this and don't do this and take this and don't take that, all those, in order to have some kind of security when this life ends. But listen, they never gain righteousness through their own wisdom or their works. The wisest of men will die in the deepest depths of hell. The gospel, or the word of the cross, is foolish to the fallen. Paul's trying to remind us this. Corinth is in a church of, uh, of in a city of debauchery. It's right in the middle of it. And yet they're trying to play and trying to straddle both lines. They want to be on both sides. They want to they be in the world, but in the church. And he's looking and said, look, they have nothing to offer us. We have the message that needs to be offered to them. And so it remains followed to them. And yet, the truly saved of Corinth, and today, we have the wisdom of God. We have the all-sufficient plan to save, secure, and grow us in the Son's image. That's what we have. What a blessing. Think about the power of God. The Bible says the weakness of God is stronger than men there in the end of verse 25. Think about the lowest exercise of God's wisdom and power, if there were such a thing, which I don't think there is. I think he's using a phrase here to show the foolishness of man. But even if there was some lowest exercise of God's wisdom and power, it's still more effective than all the wisdom and strength of humanity. Spurgeon, writing on this passage, said this, Frogs, locusts, and flies were more than a match for Pharaoh and his great nation. The greatest of men are defeated by the weakest things of God. I'd like to be known for that. You were taken out by frogs. I mean, just think about that. It can't handle frogs, let alone the sovereignty of God and the rejection of that. So in other words, God takes what man thinks to be the weakest things and proves that man is a no match for what he thinks are the weakest things God created. Greatest example, Jesus hanging dead on a cross. They see that as weak. And they see that as foolish. That they need to come through someone else. God's power is real power, brothers and sisters. He awakens the dead. He grants faith in the middle of darkness. That's what He does. It's real power. And it is often put on display because it means something and, and, and accomplishes what God sends it to do. You remember Naaman who had leprosy, right? And he comes to Israel and there, a little servant girl, a nobody, worthless, right? Remember her? Well, if you go to the prophet Isaiah, he he can heal you. So he goes to Isaiah and Isaiah says, look, you need to dip yourself in these, these this river here. He goes, oh, this is foolish, <laughs> right? We have beautiful lakes and streams and rivers why don't we just go do it there then everything will be good and he denies God and walks off but yet he cannot cleanse himself and you know the story in the end he submits to the truth that started with a little girl and God cleanses him it's story after story this week in my own personal reading I was in in 2nd Kings chapter 18 and there we find Elijah on Mount Carmel with The 400 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, right? And let's put up a couple of altars. Let's kill some oxen and put them on there. And then let's cry out to our God and see who answers. You remember this, don't you? Prophets of Baal pray and cry out and and even uh, try to appease their God or appeal to their God by slashing themselves. Try to suffer in front of Him in order to get Him to react. Trying to manipulate their God's. Nothing but crickets. Elijah walks up and says, well, let's do it this way. Let's dump some water on this. Let's dump so much water on this altar that it fills the trough that we've dug around it. And then let me talk to the living God. Elijah cries out to the living God. And he sends a bolt of flames down that consumes that altar Like there's no tomorrow. See, the world has such a wrong view of God. And we shouldn't look to them for anything. When they try to put a movie out about Jonah or about Noah or anything else, they're going to get it wrong, right? (laughs) We look to God because He understands us. He knows these things. He has given us the greatest message in the world. But to the world, it is foolish this kind of power can never be produced by man but listen god in his graciousness offers it to us he gives it to us what a blessing power of salvation has been on display since the promise of salvation the promise of salvation took place in the garden genesis 3:15 i will crush the head of the serpent and you'll have a son and from his lying will come the one who will do that and so this power of salvation has been offered. It is the only power that beats sin. It is the only power that beats Satan, and it is only the power that power can give life over death that rules. Death rules. It does. And there's only one that can give it. Second thought this morning. God makes the weak strong and the strong weak. God makes the weak strong and the strong weak. Look at verse 26 with me. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Doubtlessly, Paul was thinking of the Corinth church and quite possibly all the other churches that he ministered to. Notice the little term there, not many. So maybe a few. But the majority were not brought to Christ because they were famous because they were independently wealthy or had superiority of education or there were some power brokers in society or maybe had some wide influential personalities. And if they had any of those things, if they had, because he's reminding them that, that most of us don't come from that, right? Most of us don't. And, and, I, and I would add to that, if, if they did or we did have those virtues, you would most likely denounce those things what's following when you start following Christ. I see a Christian, whether he's wealthy or not, whether he, he or she has been influential in the past, would never want to serve two masters, Right? Now you would look at your wealth and what God had done in the past with you through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of the word of God, and you would handle it for his glory. Jesus himself said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other. That's a very strong statement, isn't it? God says he will hate one and love the other. Hmm. See, one of the ways we realize that people have truly been saved is they hate that old way of life. They see it for what it was. It was dead. It it was the very thing Satan was using to drag them to hell. It was their identity before salvation. And they begin to say, I hate what that was making me into. I love what Jesus has changed me into. The Bible says that this person will be devoted to one and despise the other. you cannot serve God in wealth. that doesn't mean that he hasn't granted some people wealth. But the Bible here is saying not many of us came into the full millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> Most of us came in fairly blue-collared. That's, that's, the, that's kind of you look at the church and down through the ages. And if anything, if anything, it has more of a poorer end to it, as we look at the New Testament. See, Christians, when we come to Christ, we separate ourselves from the world in the fact that we're not from it anymore. We're not even of it. We, we may be in it, but we're not, that's, that's not who we are anymore. We let those things go. Notice he says in that verse, consider your calling, brethren. In, in other words, God's word is saying, look, believer, ponder this. By God's gracious, effective call, he redeemed you out of a dark, sinful world. Why do you want to live in it? Christian, why do you want to have one foot in the world? And on Sunday, act like you are a follower of Jesus. See, he says, consider this. The word calling is an amazing word. It's a beautiful word. This particular use of this term is a divine summons. And we know that We we were what we were before salvation and what we were capable of, right? And God did not look at our intelligence or our family heritage or or our positions of power and choose us on those attributes. Oh, boy, just got to have Scott. You know, the church won't be complete without him. That's not how God works in any way. In fact, the Bible tells us that he chose us for salvation despite ourselves. Do you believe that? I mean, that's a right biblical soteriology. That you believe that God chose you for salvation despite yourself. He was not in need of us in some sense, right? Because anything, any of those human attributes that that we held so dearly, those become stumbling blocks. Even as you come into the faith, well... You know, God, thank you for saving me. I think me and you can really get some stuff done. I got the gifts. You got the power. Let's do it. Man, that's arrogant. None of us preach, teach, hold a baby, clean a floor, or care for an elderly. None of us do that without the Spirit of God driving us and helping us and aiding us. In fact, all the gifts come from the Father above. See, Titus three five reminded us, uh, three, three, and five say this: For, for we also were once foolish ourselves. He uses the same word. Remember the cross. The word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. So Paul writes to Titus. He says, "We ourselves were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures." Well, what does that mean? You thought you were something. You thought you had it going on. You thought you could gain everything you wanted by your own. That's where we were before we were saved. We were spending our life in malice, envy, hateful and hating one another. But when, I love this phrase, the kindness of our God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of our deeds, but according to His mercy, the text says. He doesn't come along and say, oh boy, we really needed that person. That'll really round out the church. Boy, they'll be strong if I put that person in there. Oh, what arrogance that comes with that. See, God's not looking for the ultra gifted to save and do his work. I want you to understand that this morning. God's not looking for the ultra gifted. He doesn't need the extreme wealthy businessman, he doesn't need the athlete, he doesn't need the movie star, and he doesn't need the politicians. Though salvation can certainly be granted to people like that, and he has done that in the past, Paul is telling us it is rare. It's rare. The very things that brought them power and prestige become idols, and they blind them from the need of a Savior. Look with me at Matthew chapter 11 real quick. Jesus is ending his ministry up north. And he's beginning to make his way towards the cross. And in a sense, he turns back and looks at the cities that he had done such miraculous work in. Where all these prominent people had lived. And he begins a series of woes to them. You'll see in verse 20, 21 and following there. They have rejected him. They did not want him as a savior. They wanted him as a king, someone who would crush their enemies, give them free bread and, and, and government support, right? That's what they wanted from him. We don't, have, we don't need a Medicare system. We don't need to work because we get food. We want Jesus. They didn't see themselves as a savior. They didn't need, see themselves as needing a savior. So when we come to verse 25, listen to what Jesus says at this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Now he's praying in front of them. Lord of heaven and earth. Right there. Please understand, man is just peanuts (laughs) when you come to that statement. Lord, master, ruler of heaven and earth. Man somehow thinks they got this whole thing figured out because we're going to save the earth. And they never asked the Lord of it, what he's doing. Oh, what a great prayer this is. That you have hidden these things, look at this, that you have hidden these things, the gospel, his message, who he is, from the wise and the intelligent, and have revealed them, look at this, to infants. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are not proudful this morning because the sermon's going to get into your kitchen. <laughs> we are the infants. God chose to save those who set their intelligence and all their list and decrees and degrees and all the things that we have aside when we came to Jesus. We came like children. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Mountain Jewel Ranch. A ranch full of special needs young men and older men. Some of them are in their 60s and 70s now. Still alive. I was just looking at their Facebook this week. We're sinners, Jesus. We believe you died for us, Jesus. We believe you forgave our sins, Jesus. And we believe we're going to live with you forever. That's foolish to the world. But not to our Lord. Notice Jesus goes on, verse 26. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father. Now he's talking about his equality. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. They're in perfect unity. They know each other perfectly because they share the same glory. And anyone, now look at this, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now Jesus had previously said, all that you give me, I will keep. But here he says, all that the Son reveals you to will be saved. They work in conjunction together. The whole triune God is a part of our salvation. Look at verse 28, and now he comes to this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heaven-laden. Come to me, you who have great degrees and have leaned upon your own finances. Come to me, all you who have thought you could figure out how to get to me. On your own. Come to me, you self righteous who have made your list of who you were born into and what you have done and what you've accomplished. Come to me because you're worn out with those works, aren't you? And I'll give you rest. I'll let you rest from your works because I won't accept your works. I'll only accept the work of my son. Verse 29 Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take. Take my work, take my heavy load that I'm going to bear, what I'm going to do, and learn from me. Lay down your work and take it up with me. Take up what I'm doing. I love this phrase. For I am gentle and humble in heart. That's what the Lord Jesus did. The creator of the world steps out of heaven to die for us. There is no more wisdom. There is no more power beyond that. And he says, look, come unto me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And I will find rest for your souls. Stop working. Stop leaning on your own strength and experiences and power and money and who you are and, your, and everything that's happened to you. Stop leaning on those things. He says, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, why does he say that? Because he did it all. And he doesn't need us to add to it. Amen? As you turn back to 1 Corinthians, we should rejoice that God overcomes sin. He overcomes our self-righteousness. He overcomes our abilities. And so I ask you, what is in your life that you need to let go? Even as a Christian, The Corinth people were holding on to great oratorical perfection. They were holding on to the wisdom of the the great Plato's and Aristotle's and so forth. They were holding on to that stuff. Paul's saying, let that stuff go. So what are you white-knuckling? Your prestige? Your money? Your position you have? Your health? Ooh, man, people hold on to health. We saw that this year, right? Right? Health was worth everything, right? You would give up everything for your health. Someone asked me the other day, they said, how do I respond to my prosperity gospel friends that say that God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise? I said, God might want you sick and dead for His glory. (laughs) Right? Does He not have the right to let me suffer for His glory? Now, I'm not asking for that. (laughs) But he has the right. He's Lord of heaven and earth and everything in it. But instead, the prosperity gospel tells God what they want and will not listen to him. So now we move to critical race theory and judgment upon anybody that you even think thought something. Look, we may even need to give up our comfort you may need to give up your comfort because we all hold on to something and that becomes foolishness compared to what God has done. See, those things that, the things that had nothing to do with our salvation, in fact, they become stumbling blocks, right? They, they, they rob us of our joy of Christ when we hold on to them. And the way you know it, and the way I know when I have an idol, when I have something is I protect it and if somebody steps on it, I get angry. Somebody pushes on that subject or that whatever it is and something will come out of me because, oh, hey, what are you doing here? You know, I'm pretty proud of that. What needs to be given up? See, the proud Corinthians, they needed to find their strength and power in God and they needed to see what God saw foolish and believe that the world was foolish. See, in quite a reversal, God takes what seems To the world to be foolish and weak. And he grants them wisdom and power in Christ. That's what he does with us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 says this. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Right there it takes away any thought that Jesus um, maybe was a spirit being. And he really never was here. And it was somebody else. The Bible says he reconciled us in his fleshly body. He was here. The world just thinks that's just foolish. A God in human form. Are you kidding me? This is foolish to him. But that's what the Bible says, right? We believe the Bible over the world. And over our, own, over our own hearts and minds at times. He reconciled. That means he changed our position through his earthly body here. Because he died in that body, right? And this is why he did it. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now let me ask you a question. How much is that worth in the day of judgment? When you stand before an almighty God who separates the sheep and the goats, one going to eternal judgment, one going to eternal peace with Him, how much is it worth that you would be standing there holy and blameless because of His Son's work? Priceless. Priceless. And yet the world says, If there's a God, He'll accept me because of who I am. That's how they look at it. Now, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are often those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, right? They're humbled over His Lordship. Most of us in this room, we look at our past, we didn't have a whole lot to offer. And yet, the Lord seems to go after people like us, right? We, we humble ourselves because we've experienced His forgiveness. Think about what you have. Your sins, all of them, are forgiven. You know how nice it is when your spouse forgives you when you sin? Isn't that sweet? Honey, will you forgive me? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Yes, sweetheart, I forgive you. And there's a sweet reunion, and and you just enjoy that reconciliation. Now think about that in God. He forgave us of all our past, present, and future sins. Where's the world going to figure out how that gets taken place? We've experienced His love. God loves us. We've experienced His grace and mercy. And now we have a hope and we cling to the Word of God. Again, these are foolish to the world. These unlikely recipients, which would be you and I of the grace of God, now see God clearly through Jesus Christ. And we have faith that grants us peace, that passes all understanding. Woo, that's a stumbling block for the world. Wait a minute, hold on. You have to have knowledge. You have to have understanding. You have to have the stuff. You know, A has to equal B and C and you know, however geometry works and algebra, which I did do well in. Um, that has to all line up. Oh, well, no, no. Here's the way the Bible teaches. God grants me faith. I repent of my sins. He forgives me of all of them. I have eternal relationship with him. That's how it works. And I'm rewarded. Now listen to this. I'm rewarded with a peace that passes all understanding. I don't expect the psychologist to agree with me. I don't look for that. All I want to do is tell that psychologist the gospel. That's where we find their freedom. See, the world, they have to cling to their own abilities, their own wealth, their own education, and their own wisdom. They're left simply just to cling and hang on to a fallen wisdom. The books they read, as well as their own minds, their experiences, are based in spiritless existence. Richard Dawkins said this, If your God is a being who designs universes, who listens to prayers, forgives sins, wreaks miracles, reads your thoughts, cares about your welfare, and will raise you from the dead, you are are likely to be unsatisfied. That's the way he said it you are unlikely, excuse me, to be satisfied. Just doesn't make sense to him. I recently read an article that he wrote a few years back. And he denounces that that there ever can even be a God because his science tells him different. His wisdom in a fallen position tells him there is no God. Let me tell you what your faith tells you. There is a God. He knew you from the foundations of the world. He sent His Son to forgive you and die on the cross. And He has a home in heaven forever for you. See the difference between human wisdom and God-given faith? What do you want? What do you want to believe? If there's anything we've learned this year, we should be careful what the world tells us. I think so often I've had this said to me as pastor through the years, If only so and so would get saved, they could have such a great influence on others. Really? Some great athlete, or some great musician, or some great movie star. How many does the Lord save of those? Do you know any personally? These are rare, and I'm not saying God does not save, and when He does, He he still uses them like He uses us. But I'll tell you who is probably the greatest in the minds of God. A Sunday school teacher. Someone who holds babies. Someone who sees somebody in need and out of their Christian love cares for them and loves on them. Someone who sits in church with their Bible on their laps Wanting to be honest with God and wanting His power and His wisdom to deal with their life. That's the greatest. Those are the smartest, the richest people in the world. See, Jesus used fishermen, tax collectors, dead people, <laughs> demonic prostitutes, religious zealots, jailers, and slaves to, pre- to spread the message of the greatest message of the gospel to the world. And yes, He, he does save some doctors. I love Dr. Luke. He wrote Luke and Acts. He saves synagogue leaders. There's one here at Corinth. Paul was a great, a powerful Pharisee. But most, mostly, God loves to save nobodies. Look at the person next to you. I don't want you to say, hey, nobody, but I'm thinking that. <laughs> We're nobodies in the world's mind, Right? In fact, we're foolish because we believe in this God who sent his son to die for us. But God loves that, right? He loves to do that. And he's illustrating that in these verses here. The pagan world and the religious world, right? Because they go right with the pagan world. We're talking about religious world. That's works-based, right? They, they thought little of Paul's Christianity in his day. And they think little of it today, of ours. And the simplicity of the gospel and its faithful, humble believers... It was just incomprehensible to them that you would put all your hope in this dead Jew who died on a cross. See, this life of faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ is just foolishness to them. But this is exactly the way God planned it. Look at verse 27. But God, <laughs> don't you like that? You guys and gals who love to read your Bibles and mark them, you should just see that stuff. It's, it's such an aversive statement, right? These rest of these guys who are, you know, look, they're these guys who are wise, these guys who are noble and mighty and all of that. God's doing something else. And so, that, so Paul says, but God, he's not thinking like a man. Look what he does. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God has chosen, what a powerful phrase, God decides who gets saved, and it is He who who pursues and and persuades us when we are in our fallen wisdom. He is the one who comes after, that's God's plan. And thus, God does not choose to save according to the wisdom of the world, but He chooses the foolish things according to the world, right? Right? Meaning the purposes of God in calling, in saving, and changing people through His simplistic message preached was to expose and demonstrate by contrast the powerlessness of the world to the effective change that He can bring in your life. Most people reject the sufficiency of Christ in the Word. Too many Christians, too. People say, oh, your Jesus is good for eternity, but... You know, what's he going to do for me now? How about my marriage? How about my mental issues? How about these things? Is is he or isn't he sufficient? You can't have both. You can't have a Bible that says that in Christ we have everything we need. Everything is the word. Direct from the scriptures. Direct from the mouth of God. Everything we need for life and for godliness. For salvation and the daily stuff. You cannot preach that from the pulpit. Walk out of the pulpit and send somebody to the world psychologist. I'm a hypocrite. Got to take them to the Word of God. In Riverbend Church, there is no greater attack right now on Christianity than the sufficiency of Christ and His Word. What will you stand on? He's showing us this. This is foolishness to the world. Notice he uses the word shame there in verse twenty-seven. It's so fascinating. He says, "But God chose the." chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has shown the, chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The word means to dishonor, disgrace. is often used of one's hope um, has been deceived or a great disappointment. When you tell me a great disappointment, when you share with somebody and they come to you and they have divorce after divorce, they have all kinds of problems and they've been on every pill they can give them and they're still a mess. And they come to you, and and you give them the hope and the nail scarred Jesus. And they turn away and walk away from that. You want to talk about shame? One hope for them. The world has failed them repeatedly, the world has changed their view over and over and over. But Jesus is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. He's all we need, brothers and sisters. And they look at Jesus, who was publicly shamed, right? Romans chapter 3. He was publicly shamed. And they're ashamed of him to call him Lord. And so mankind will fall under the judgment of Christ, <laughs> the nail-scarred Jesus, who they were ashamed of for rejecting his word. I love King David in Psalms 25. He says to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul oh my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. You know, this is way before modern medicine and psychiatry and all this stuff, right? What's he, he He's under tremendous threat. People are trying to kill him. People are trying to take the kingdom. People are trying to rebel against God. He, he says, my, my soul is lifted up. I put my trust in you. Oh, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let my enemies exalt themselves over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. The ones that wait won't. Then he says this: Make me know your ways, O Lord. There's the answer. There's the answer for our difficulties. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths. And teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, for I will wait for you. What's God asking you to wait for? What's He asking you to put your hope in? Look at verse 28. He goes on with the same thing. And the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. Notice this word Nullify. The Spirit of God directs Paul to choose a word that means to put out of action, to take away. God's going to nullify these. He's He's going to take that their arrogant human wisdom and prove it was worthless in the end. Lord, we did all these things in your name. Depart from me. I never knew you. You put your hope in your own wisdom. You put your hope in the world's wisdom. And you've come up short. See, The idea of this nullifying carries the idea of abolishment. God was pleased to take the things that are weak to the world. The cross, the gospel, a crucified Savior, the Bible, the word of God, and abolish man's wisdom. That's what he is pleased in doing. And often God will save someone out of an influential family. And I have seen this so many times. Some of you are here where maybe you were the black sheep of the family, maybe you were the one who got into drugs, maybe you were the one that fell away and, and, and they, you know, they they were so saddened over what you did. And then God saved you. <laughs> and you began to have joy that they never had. I have seen this countless times. And that person goes on to be. The more productive person in society than even they were. And in fact, they they become part of a vital part of a church and they love the Lord and they share the gospel and God blesses them. And though they may never have a lot, they're joyful and, and, and full of the fullness of God. And then you turn the picture back to that family, and it continues to deteriorate. Wealth divides. The divorces come, the therapist appointments grow more and more. That falls away as God took the one that seemed to be the one that had all the problems. And God rescues that one. See, God loves to save the despised. He just loves the nobodies. He loves to give them everything. That's what He loves to do. And when I mean everything, He gives you a standing that you'll not need anything else to enter into heaven. There's no richer person than has holiness and blameless on their record because of Jesus Christ. And so this word despise means to consider as nothing, to make no account of here. The Bible says that Herod and his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, despise, same word. You have nothing to offer us, so we'll have you crucified. The world still does that. I think for years the church has tried to dress itself up to appeal to the world and In Riverbend Church and any other church that listens into this, stop compromising what we believe. We'll help no one when we compromise. We have a lost world out there. And what the world wants to do is change the church. They want us to be like them so they feel justified in what they're doing. You will lose the message of the gospel the minute we give it on marriage. The minute we give in on gender, the minute we give in on godless, what they call social justice issues, you'll lose the gospel and you'll lose all hope. The word despise is used in a perfect passive. I think that's very interesting. And what this means is the world considers the gospel, the cross, the word of God as permanently foolish. You have to understand that. They're not coming around. That doesn't mean God doesn't save people, but the world system is not coming around. Boy, if we just hang on a little bit and be good, you know, and do our work, the the whole world's going to come around. No, it isn't. God showed us all the way through. Every time he judges, there's a few people that he holds above judgment. He wipes out the rest. Many are called, few are chosen. The world's view of the truth of God's word is nothing. They see it as nothing. They don't see it as valuable. Romans chapter 4, verse 17, the context is that Abraham and Sarah's womb was empty. You remember this. Uh, God, um, she's 90, I'm 100. um, I don't know that we're going to be having kids here. So Paul takes the great patriarchs, he deals with David and Abraham to prove to the Roman church that God brings us to himself through faith alone. He says, as is written, the father of many nations, I have made you. He's talking about Genesis chapter 12. He says, in the presence of him whom he believed, he being Moses, he believed God, even God. Now listen to this, who gives life to the dead, now now listen to this phrase, and calls into being that which doesn't exist. That is a picture of salvation. See, the world does not have salvation. It doesn't exist with them. It's foolishness to them. When God saves somebody from the world, he gives us what didn't exist in us previously, that is faith, that leads to repentance, that leads to forgiveness, that leads to eternal life. This is what he does. He can create out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Now, humanity will remain enslaved. We need to understand that. They're dead in their sins. They love darkness and they will not come to the light. The Bible says they have no good within themselves. They don't seek after God. Romans chapter 3. That's the condition. So why does God save so many poor and helpless people and make them Christians? If I guess if we went around the world down through the 2,000 years of Christianity, the church is primarily made up of blue collar and down. And a lot on the poor end. And it's interesting. It's because the poor person needs God, the rich person doesn't. In many cases, right? And it isn't because the poor sins less and the rich sins more. That's not the issue. They're both sinners. They're both condemned, right? But a poor person... He knows, he gets to a point where God uses his poverty, uses his troubles, uses his issues, and through that, by his sovereign grace, causes them to reach out and consider him as the only way. This is what he does. And we see God's love for those who are destitute. The rich man of Lazarus, Luke chapter sixteen. I preached that not too long ago at the end of the series on salvation. What What an amazing thing, this man... All he wanted was the breadcrumbs. Remember, we learned those were day-old bread that they would wipe their hand, their dirty hands with and throw under the table. All he wanted was that. And the man with unknown amount of wealth ends up in hell, and the rich, man, uh, the rich man ends up in hell, and Lazarus, the poor man, ends up with the Lord. You have the blind the beggars. Blind I love these two guys. Just as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he's on his way. He's got a big entourage of people that want him to be king and crush the Romans. Um, he comes along these two blind beggars. Their hope is that he is the son of David. And if he's the son of David, he can, he can help us. He can deal with us. And they put their faith in Jesus and he heals them. You have the blind man in chapter 9, he's put out of the synagogue because he won't denounce Jesus. You have Mary Magdalene, the demonic, most likely with everything, prostitution, and everything that comes with it. Pharisees could not stand her in their presence as Jesus was there with her. And Mary Magdalene is the first one Jesus appears to after his resurrection. And what about you <laughs> and me? What's your history? Why did God choose to save you? See Jesus excuse me John chapter 1 says this verse 12 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man but of God Romans 9 says, So then it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who gives mercy. So it's not from your bloodlines. It's not from your wealth. It's not what your flesh can produce. It's not from yourself willing yourself, willing yourself to God. It is through the will of God that he saves us. And he loves to save, that he can take those who are lost and make them found. Jonathan Edwards said this, God's choice of you is, is a condescending act of grace and mercy. Now, don't use the word condescending as we use it today, but that He comes down to us. He never asks us to come up to Him. And so my good, Steve, good friend Steve Fernandez, who's now with the Lord, said it this way. He says, human wisdom chooses those who will be most helpful to us. God's wisdom chooses those He can help the most. Human wisdom chooses those who will give the best return. God's wisdom chooses those He can give aid to. Human wisdom chooses those most deserving. God's wisdom chooses the worst because they are the least deserving. That's how God works. Well, I need to end. And we'll come back and pick this up next time. But just look with me at verse 29 and following. This is where we want to end. This is where we want to be. This is the mark of a true Christian. So that no man may boast before God. By his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just it is written. Let him who boast boast in the Lord. This powerful text. And believe me. I was Throwing stuff out of my notes left and right. I could teach on this till the cows come home. And that's a long time. It's at least till four when they come back to be milked. There's so much truth packed into this. But in the end, who are you going to boast about? The degrees you have on the wall? The banking account? Some of us go, yeah, not very funny. Uh, What are you going to boast in? Are you going to boast in Jesus? Are you going to boast in his finished work? Will you boast in the word of God? It has everything I need for life and godliness. Father, thank you for this time in the word. We're overwhelmed with these deep truths. They are are beyond anything man could come up with on his own. We're humbled that you would take the things that are foolish to the world and Show them so glorious to us. We can trust you and believe you and put our faith in you. And even as Christians, as we go through troubled times, even when our minds and our hearts will deceive us from time to time, we can run back and say, no, Lord, let let me not put my weight in my own wisdom and my own thinking and my own experience. Let me know your word, Lord. And you will lead us to the truth. So, Lord, help us as a church to uphold the sufficiency of Christ and His Word. It is the only hope for the world. It is the only hope for our relatives and friends and family that we so dearly want to know You, Lord. Any other methods are to be rejected. They are just foolishness. It is the message of the cross. It is the message of the gospel. It is the message of a crucified Savior risen from the dead that pierces through the foolishness of man. So keep us bent on that, Lord, as a church, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory for shedding your light unto those undeserved of your mercy. We praise and thank you that you did not ask us to come to you through our own wisdom and our own abilities. Our hearts are full of gratitude that you chose us, chose to save us through your gospel. And though the world sees the work of the cross and the sufficiency of the scriptures as foolish, we cling to these truths for everything from salvation to daily living. And may we only boast in you, Lord. For you have made Christ to be our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Our hope is in you alone. Amen.